Chapter Two of A Slave Is a Slave by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. Shatrak nodded. Morville made a hand signal and vanished in a flicker of rainbow colors. When the screen cleared, a young landing troop lieutenant in battle dress was looking out of it. He saluted and gave his name, rank, and unit. This missile-launching site I'm occupying, sir. It's twenty miles northwest of the city. We took it thirty minutes ago. No resistance whatever. There are four hundred or so people here. Of them twelve, one dozen are soldiers. The rest are civilians. Ten enlisted men, a non-com of some sort, and something that appears to be an officer. The officer had a pistol, fully loaded. The non-com had a submachine gun, empty, with two loaded clips on his belt. The privates had rifles, empty and no ammunition. The officer did not know where the rifle ammunition was stored. Shatrak swore. The second lieutenant nodded. Exactly my comment when he told me, sir. But this place is beautifully kept up. Lawns are mowed, trees neatly pruned, everything policed up like inspection morning. And there is a headquarters office building here adequate for an army division. How about the armament, lieutenant? Shatrak asked with forced patience. Ah, yes, the armament, sir. There are eight big launching cradles for pan-planetary or off-planet missiles. They are all polished up like the crown jewels. But none, repeat, none of them is operative, and there is not a single missile on the installation. Shatrak's facial control didn't slip. It merely intensified, which amounted to the same thing. Lieutenant Carmath, I am morally certain I heard you correctly, but let's just check. You said—he repeated the lieutenant back almost word for word. Carmath nodded. That was it, sir. The missile crypts are stacked full of old photoprints and recordings and microfilm spools. The sighting and guidance systems for all the launchers are completely missing. The let-off mechanisms all lack major parts. There is an elaborate set of detection equipment which will detect absolutely nothing. I saw a few pairs of binoculars about. I suspect that that is what we were first observed with. This office now. I suppose all the paperwork is up to the minute in quintuplicate, and initialed by everybody within sight or hearing. I haven't checked on that yet, sir. If you're thinking of betting on it, please don't expect me to cover you, though. Well, thank you, Lieutenant Carmuth. Stick around. I'm sending down a tech intelligence crew to look at what's left of the place. While you're waiting, you might sort out whoever seems to be in charge, and find out just what in Niflheim he thinks that launching station was maintained for. I think I can tell you that now, Commodore," Prince Trevanion said as Shatrak blanked the screen. We have a petrified authoritarianism quite likely some sort of an oligarchy. I guess that this convocation thing they talk about consists of all the ruling class. Everybody has equal voice, and nobody will take the responsibility for doing anything. And the actual work of government is probably handled by a corps of bureaucrats entrenched in their jobs, unwilling to exert any effort and afraid to invite any criticism, and living only to retire on their pensions. I've seen governments like that before." He named a few. One thing, once a government like that has been bludgeoned into the Empire, 
It rarely makes any trouble later. Just to judge by this missileless non-launching station, Shatrak said, they couldn't even decide on what kind of trouble to make or how to start it. I think you're going to have a nice, easy proconsulate here, Count Erskyll. Count Erskyll started to say something. No doubt he was about to tell Shatrak, cunningly, that he didn't want an easy proconsulate, but an opportunity to help these people. He was saved from this by the buzzing of Shatrak's communication screen. It was Colonel Pierre Ravney, the Navy Landing Troop Commander. Like everybody else who had gone down to Zagensburg, he was in battle dress and armed. The transpex visor of his helmet was pushed up. Between Shatrak's generation and Count Erskyll's, he sported a pointed mustache and a spiky chin-beard, which, on his thin and dark-eyed face, looked distinctly Mephistophelian. He was grinning. "'Well, sir, I think we can call it a done job,' he said. "'There's a delegation here who want to talk to the Lord's Master of the Ships on behalf of the Lord's Master of the Convocation. Two of them, with about a dozen portfolio-bearers and note-takers. I'm not too good in lingua terra, outside basic at best, and their brand is far from that. I gather that there's some kind of civil servants, personal representatives of the top Lord's Master.' "'Do we want to talk to them?' Shatrak asked. "'Well, we should only talk to the actual, titular, heads of the government, mastership.' Erskyll, suddenly protocol-conscious, objected. "'We can't negotiate with subordinates.' "'Oh, who's talking about negotiating? There isn't anything to negotiate. Aditya is now part of the Galactic Empire. If this present regime assents to that, they can stay in power.' If not, we will toss them out and install a new government. We will receive this delegation, inform them to that effect, and send them back to relay the information to their Lord's Master." He turned to the Commodore. "'May I speak to Colonel Ravney?' Shatrak assented. He asked Ravney where these Lord's Masters were. "'Here in the Citadel, in what they call the Convocation Chamber, close to a thousand of them, screaming recriminations at one another. Sounds like feeding time at the Imperial Zoo. I think they all want to surrender, but nobody dares propose it first. I've just put a cordon around it and placed it off-limits to everybody, and everything outside off-limits to the Convocation. Well thought of, Colonel. I suppose the Citadel teems with bureaucrats and such low-life forms? Bulging with them, literally thousands. Lons Degbrin and Commander Durvin and a few others are trying to get some sensible answers out of some of them. This delegation, how had you thought of sending them up? Landycraft to Isabel. Isabel will bring them the rest of the way. He looked at his watch. Well, don't be in too much of a rush to get them here, Colonel. We don't want them till after lunch. Delay them on Isabel. The skipper can see that they have their own lunch aboard and entertain them with some educational films, something to convince them that there is slightly more to the Empire than one ship of the line, two cruisers and four destroyers. Count Erskyll was dissatisfied about that, too. He wanted to see the delegation at once, and make arrangements to talk to their superiors. Count Erskyll, among other things, was zealous, and of this he disapproved. Zealous statesmen perhaps did more mischief than anything in the galaxy, 
with the possible exception of procrastinating soldiers. That could indicate the fundamental difference between statecraft and war. He'd have to play with that idea a little. An empire, ship of the line, was almost a mile in diameter. It was more than a battlecraft. It also had political functions. The Grand Salon, on the outer zone, where the curvature of the floors was less disconcerting, was as magnificent as any but a few of the rooms of the Imperial Palace at Asgard on Odin, the floor richly carpeted, and the walls alternating mirrors and paintings. The movable furniture varied according to occasion. At present it consisted of the bare desk at which they sat, the three chairs they occupied, and the three secretary robots, their rectangular black casts blazoned with the sun and cogwheel of the Empire. It faced the door at the far end of the room. On either side a rank of spacemen, in dress uniform and under arms, stood. In principle, annexing a planet to the Empire was simplicity itself. But like so many things simple in principle, it was apt to be complicated in practice. And to this, he suspected, the present instance would be no exception. In principle, one simply informed the planetary government that it was now subject to the sovereignty of his imperial majesty, the Galactic Emperor. This information was always conveyed by a ministerial secretary, directly under the Prime Minister, and only one more step down from the Emperor, in the present instance Jurgen, Prince Trevanion. To make sure that the announcement carried conviction, the presumably glad tidings were accompanied by the Imperial Space Navy, at present represented by Commodore Van Shetrak and a seven-ship battle-line unit and two thousand Imperial landing troops. When the locals had been properly convinced, with as little bloodshed as necessary, but always beyond any dispute, an Imperial proconsul, in this case Obrey, Count Erskel, would be installed. He would by no means govern the planet. The Imperial Constitution was definite on that point. Every planetary government should be sovereign as to intraplanetary affairs. The proconsul, within certain narrow and entirely inelastic limits, would merely govern the government. Unfortunately, Obrey, Count Erskel, appeared not to understand this completely. It was his impression that he was a torch-bearer of imperial civilization, or something equally picturesque and metaphorical. As he conceived it, it was the duty of the Empire, as represented by himself, to make over backward planets like Aditya in the image of Odin, or Marduk, or Osiris, or Baldur, or, preferably, his own home-world of Aton. This was Obrey of Erskel's first proconsular appointment. It was due to family influence, and it was a mistake. Mistakes, of course, were inevitable in anything as large and complex as the Galactic Empire, and any institution guided by men was subject to one kind of influence or another, family influence being no worse than any other kind. In this case, the ultra-conservative Erskels of Aton, from old Errol, Duke of Yorvoy, down, had become alarmed at the political radicalism of young Obrey, and had, on his graduation from the University of Nefertiti, persuaded the Prime Minister to appoint him to a proconsulate as far from Aton as possible, 
where he would not embarrass them. Just at that time, more important matters having been gotten out of the way, Aditya had come up for annexation, and Obrey of Erkskull had been named proconsul. That had been a mistake. He should have been sent to some planet which had been under imperial rule for some time, where the proconsulate ran itself in a well-worn groove, and where he could at leisure learn the procedures and unlearn some of the unrealisms absorbed at the university from professors too well insulated from the realities of politics. There was a stir among the guards. Helmet visors were being snapped down, feet scuffed. They stiffened to attention. The great doors at the other end of the Grand Salon slid open, and the guards presented arms as the Adityan delegation was ushered in. There were fourteen of them. They all wore ankle-length gowns, and they all had shaven heads. The one in the lead carried a staff and wore a pale green gown. He was apparently a herald. Behind him came two in white gowns, their empty hands folded on their breasts. One was a huge bulk of obesity with a bulging brow, protuberant eyes, and a pursy little mouth, and the other was thin and cadaverous, with a skull-like, almost fleshless face. The ones behind, in dark green and pale blue, carried portfolios and slung-sound recorder-cases. There was a metallic twinkle at each throat. As they approached, he could see that they all wore large silver gorgets. They came to a halt twenty feet from the desk. The herald raised his staff. I present the admirable and trusty Tachal Hoshet, personal chief slave of the Lord Master Olvir Nicolon, chairman of the Presidium of the Lord's Master Convocation, and Karagor Chimid, chief slave in office to the Lord Master Rovard Javasan, chief of administration of management of the mastership, he said. Then he stopped puzzled, looking from one to another of them. When his eyes fell on Van Shatrak, he brightened. "'Are you,' he asked, "'the chief slave of the chief Lord Master of this ship?' End of chapter 2